All right, well, good morning and every and welcome to everyone who is watching and following along with this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call Interview Series. As always, I'm Will Driscoll, the Executive Director here at the Hall of Fame, and I'm happy to bring you another exciting edition of Hall Call. But before we get started, I'd like to thank all of our Hall Call and Hall of Fame partners, Priority Automotive, the City of Virginia Beach, the Beck Foundation, Davcon Inc., Optima Health, White Claw Hard Seltzer, ESPN Radio 94.1, Hamilton Realty, and Davis Business Appraisers. We are able to bring you Hall Call because of partners like them. Well, we are just 11 days away from the 2023 induction. It seems like just yesterday we made the announcement back in November, but less than two weeks away from our 50th induction. And today we continue that discussion with one of our inductees, Ryan Zimmerman. Zimmerman starred for Kellum High School and the Tidewater Drillers program before an all-ACC career at the University of Virginia. He would become the first-ever draft pick for the Washington Nationals after the franchise's move from Montreal, and he would continue the pipeline of talent from the 757 area code to Major League Baseball. In 16 seasons with the club, Zimmerman set franchise marks for hits, home runs, RBIs, and games played. Off the field, he has helped raise millions of dollars towards multiple sclerosis research through his Zims Foundation, and he was recently awarded the Power of Baseball Award by Washington Nationals Philanthropies. And whether you refer to him as Ryan, Zim, or Mr. National, uh, we can soon add Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee to that list as well. So Ryan, thanks for taking some time to join us today. Yeah, no problem. It's good to be here. So uh, this whole retirement thing is still fairly new to you. So what, what are you doing to pass the time these days? Yeah, it's uh, it's a little different. You know, we have four kids. Our youngest just turned one in January. So uh, so we we stay busy is, uh, you know, there's definitely uh, never nothing to do around here. So it's been uh, an interesting transition from doing baseball every single day for basically the last 25 plus years of my life to being home and, uh, you know, starting to do dad stuff every day i mean you know i i was lucky to be around a good amount i mean we traveled a lot during the season but you know the off season i was around a bunch um but you know now being around every single day is uh you know it's a challenge but it's fun and uh, you know i'm lucky to be able to be around my kids as much as i am i'm sure that they're very happy that you're home and uh you know i uh Having having one of my own, I know that their schedules can keep you busy. So I'm sure there's not a lot of downtime for you. Yeah, definitely, definitely not a lot of downtime. There's something going on every single day. That's right. In that downtime, that little bit of downtime, did you get a chance to watch the World Baseball Classic at all? Uh, yeah, I watched a little bit actually. Um, it's such a cool event. I think um, you know it's it's cool to see people get excited about baseball and have something a little different where people are playing for their countries. And, um, you know, it's, it, you, you wish there was a better time that they could have it, but there's really no other time besides right there in spring training. If you could do it when all the guys are kind of in mid season form, I think it would make it even better. But, uh, as far as growing the game of baseball and, you know, I think opening people's eyes to, to the many players that come from all over the globe and play baseball. And, and it's a, it's a fun tournament to watch and the energy and the excitement. A couple of guys that I know went to some of the games and they said the atmosphere was incredible. So it's definitely something fun to watch. And uh, I enjoy it every few years. It was, you, you mentioned it, the energy and the passion, and it really just reminded fans of the game that it's really, it can be fun. It, it, and it can be fun. And, and you mentioned maybe there's a different time, but do you think that there would ever be a time where the, the season would shut down, kind of like what the Olympics does for the NHL 
for that two to three week period in the middle of the season when everybody's in form? Yeah, I mean, I've talked to some people about it. I think it'd just be too hard for the people who don't play in the tournament. I mean, it's not really fair to the pitchers and, and position players, but more of the pitchers to say we're going to take two or three walk, three weeks off in the middle of the season. I think it would, it, it, would, it would harm more people than it would help. So, I mean, that's what I was saying. It's just unfortunate there's really no other time to do it. If you do it after the playoffs are over, you know, for the teams that aren't in the playoffs, those guys have been off for a month. Uh, so, I mean, it makes the most sense to do it when they do it. It's just, you wish somehow, I mean, I guess if the guys know they're playing in it, you know, they take it upon themselves to be ready, but, uh, but yeah, if you could do it right in the middle of the season, it'd be awesome. I just don't know if that's feasible. Yeah, definitely difficult trying to to shut the season down for a few weeks. And I think that, you know, trying to make the best of, um, you know, not a great situation prior to the season when everybody's in spring training is probably the best option there. Um, speaking more about kind of like what how the game is shifting now, what's your reaction to the rule changes and how would you react to pitch clocks, limited shift, bigger bases? Are these things that you're in favor of or are they kind of out of sight, out of mind because you're no longer playing anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think a lot of people were kind of bent out of shape about these things when they first heard it because everyone's so baseball is such a traditional sport, I think. I think to a, to a fault sometimes. I think we we don't make, you know, changes that we should have made five, ten years ago because everyone's afraid to mess with, you know, the traditions and you can't change things where, you know, I think to these changes make the game better. I mean, um, you know, everyone was worried about the pitch clock and how it was going to ruin things. And, I mean, and playing the games in two and a half to three hours, I think, is a good thing. You know, I mean, it, it speeds it up, but not to the point where it's like, it doesn't speed it up so so poorly that it seems like people are rushing. I mean, I've watched some games, and if you didn't see the clock, I don't think you'd really notice a difference. And I think as it goes on more, I really don't think you'll really see a change. But, uh, you know, I think it just forces the action and gets people, uh, you know, in the box or pitchers on the mound. And, you know, let's let's play baseball. We're here. We're here to play, and you don't need to stand out of the box for 45 seconds in between every pitch and take seven deep breaths and get ready for the next one. Like let's, let's move on and let's go. Yeah. And, and hopefully it's, it's something that encourages more kids to watch. I know kids are out there playing, but I, I hearing from my son, who's, who's in almost 10 and some of his friends that they, they would say that it's just not a fun game to watch. They love playing it, but it, it wasn't fun to watch. And hopefully that starts to change as you see more action, more action on the base pass, the ball and play more. Um, so yeah, so hopefully, hopefully these are all good things for the game, but kind of transitioning, uh, the conversation a little bit, you lent your voice recently to a chapter in, uh, in the recent book, the baseball miracle of the splendid six in Towny Townsend. Um, what do you remember most fondly from your youth baseball days with the Tidewater Drillers? As I mentioned, you're part of this, this pipeline that not a lot of other areas in the country can claim, but we have a great baseball tradition down here over the last quarter century in Hampton Roads. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've said it a bunch. I think I'll, so many of us were lucky to just have great coaches at a young age. And I think you find that a lot down there in that Tidewater area. And, you know, you know, we were learning things, you know, at age 9, 10, 11, that other people weren't learning until they got into high school or even college. So, I mean, to have the, that type of coaching and then to be able to play against the type of competition we did from such a young age, I think, you know, those are the two most important things when in youth sports. I mean, learning how to do things correctly and being taught the correct way to do things 
and then implementing those against great competition. I mean, that's what grows a player and a person. And, um, you know, we're so lucky to have what we had down there in Virginia beach and it seems to continue, continue on. And, uh, you know, a lot of that credit needs to be given to, you know, the coaches, the, you know, which are just, you know, moms and dads and people donating and, 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 uh, you know, giving their time. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think when everyone asks me about that, I, I go right back to, just the people that taught me how to play the game from a young age. And I, you know, I couldn't be more grateful to them. Is there a special camaraderie among the the players that have come from this area and not just the major league players, but even the, the upper level talent that made it through the minors and played top level college baseball. Is there that camaraderie amongst the seven, five, seven guys? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when we see each other, we definitely, you know, we used to keep in touch a lot more as you get older and you have kids and you, you know, you kind of go your separate ways and some people live in different, different parts of the country now, but yeah, I mean, we, I think we all will, we'll always have kind of that special bond of growing up and playing against each other. And, you know, when you do something from the beginning, either with someone or against them and then reach the pinnacle of whatever you do together, I mean, you'll always have, have that special kind of bond and, you know, we don't get to see each other or talk as much as we'd all like, but yeah, I mean, I think, Anytime we see each other, we kind of go right back, right back to where we were. We baseball is a stats driven game. So so we always draw our eyes to the home runs, the RBIs, the batting average. But um, looking at your old scouting reports, the, the defensive aspect of your game was always there. What was that something that you prioritized at a young age or was that kind of a, just something that came naturally? Your, your hands were always listed in the scouting report. What drove you to really focus on the defensive side of the game to make an impact? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of that <clears throat> obviously is just ability that you're blessed with, I think. And then you take it upon yourself to, to work hard at it. I was, I had the September birthday, but I was, I was the youngest in, in my grade always. So I was kind of physically a little bit more immature than a lot of the people I was playing with in high school. And so like the offensive side, I could hit, but I didn't really hit for power. I didn't do any of that stuff. So I took it upon myself to try and, you know, influence the game defensively because that was something I could do. Um, you know, I was still like a year behind. I didn't really physically mature till that first year in college. Um, but defense was always something that I could do. And it didn't matter if I was, you know, the smallest guy, the biggest guy, it doesn't matter. If you can play defense, you can play defense. So I took, I took a lot of pride in that. And, um, you know, I think it held my career tremendously because, you know, I, I was so, you know, worried about defense and then finally my hitting came and, you know, then you kind of had the complete package, but uh, yeah, I took a lot of pride in my defense, you know, obviously my entire career I did as well. And, uh, you know, it's, they always say defense doesn't go in slumps. You know, you can, if you, if you're having a bad day at the plate, you can, you can influence the game on the other side of the field. There's always value in stopping the other team from scoring and no matter what sport you're playing. Um, you mentioned your college, you're obviously wearing your, uh, your alma mater shirt right there, UVA. What drew you to UVA for baseball? We, we know the success they've had the last 15 years, but prior to that, it, it, this isn't something that is, you know, generationally known as a, as a historical baseball program. So what drew you to UVA in the early 2000s? Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to how I was, you know, not the most physically uh, intimidating presence in, in high school, uh, you know, I wasn't that highly recruited out of high school. You know, I had, you know, I had some good, good schools. I looked at, you know, JMU, 
UNC Wilmington, UNC Charlotte, ODU, like those kind of schools, but none of the major conferences really were on me, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and then I went down to a tournament in Florida and had a decent tournament and Virginia kind of took interest after they saw me play there. So, uh, I mean, I love the school. It's a great school. I think, um, you know, but the main thing was just being able to play in the ACC against the best talent. And, you know, that was my kind of my only, uh, only choice or my only, you know, ability to do that. So I thought, you know, that's going to be the best, best option for me. And obviously it turned into to a great decision and I love, you know, Charlottesville and the school. Um, but it was just kind of, just kind of happened by chance. And, you know, I uh, look back and, you know, you always look back and think about what if you didn't do this? What if that didn't happen? Um, but I definitely think going there helped me, you know, get to where I am today. Uh, talk about the influence that that your coach at UVA, Dennis Womack, had on had on you. He he ended his career at UVA just prior. He was a coach before Brian O'Connor, but he got you there, and that kind of started to put in motion a lot of the success that the program has had now. So just kind of talk about his influence on your career. Yeah, yeah. Coach Womack was was there for my first year. Um, obviously, they recruited me and, and and got me in there. And um, you know, like you said, a lot of people don't really know that UVA wasn't a baseball powerhouse like it has been for the last 20 years now um you know at one point in the late 90s i believe they almost got rid of baseball at the university of virginia and made it basically just a club sport and um you know it was saved by a couple of generous uh anonymous donors I mean, that's a different story but uh you know <laughs> and then from there you know my my first year there we had a really good team i think we finished right at or a little bit under 500 we had some talented player i mean mark Mark Reynolds was on that team, a couple other Virginia Beach people. Um, but we kind of had a good team there, and, and, and Womack did a great job getting us together. And then, obviously, that was his last year. And then Coach O'Connor came in for my second and third years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Coach Womack, I think, sort of laid the, the, the framework for that group of guys. And then we sort of transitioned to have Coach O'Connor come in, um, say, a younger different type of voice and from there we just kind of took off I mean my years we never really took that next step I mean we made it to regionals both years that coach O'Connor was there we had really good years I think I want to say my second year we were ranked as high as third or fourth in the country and had a really good year um, and then after we left obviously they've continued to ascend and win a national championship and basically be a part of that picture every year so it's it's cool to uh to see what they've become and it's taken a lot of uh a lot of effort from a lot of different people to get that program to where it is today. Yeah, we won't go into it here, but for anybody who's watching or listening to this, check out the the tiered funding story about UVA athletics from the late 90s, early 2000s. And that, that kind of goes to how close the program was to, like you said, being bumped down to the club level. But following college, you were, it's very well known, you were the first draft pick of the Nationals after they moved the, made the move from Montreal but you also debuted in Major League Baseball that same year. What do you attribute your fast rise through the system to? Well, I think, you know, a lot of professional sports, any professional sport, but particularly baseball, comes down to being in the right place at the right time and, and having an opportunity. Uh, you know, once you have the opportunity, you have to take advantage of it and, and capitalize on it. Nothing's given to you at that level. But, you know, I came into a really good situation, you know, to a team that was, uh, coming down from Montreal to DC. So it was essentially 
I say like an expansion team pretty much. I mean, MLB was running the team for the first year or two. So it's not like they were going out and signing big name free agents. So, you know, getting drafted by them, coming from college. So I'm already, you know, two or three levels ahead from a lot of a lot of high school kids. So they felt comfortable kind of throwing me right into double A. And then that that year I played well enough to kind of come up in September and just they wanted to see what they had. And, uh, you know, like I said, just right place, right time. They had a third baseman and Vinny Castillo, who was a great player, but his contract was up at the end of the year. So they were kind of trying to decide, do we want to re-sign this guy, even though we're a team that's really not going to go go many places in the next couple of years? Or do we bring the young kid up and see if he can, you know, see if he can handle it? And, you know, like I said, I was lucky to be in the right place. And, you know, they gave me a shot that September and I did pretty well. And, you know, came into spring training next year with the with the ability to, you know, earn the earn the starting job. And, and from there, I just kind of took it and, and ran with it. I think 16 seasons uh, shows that they made the right decision. Um, you know, you played on some really good Nationals teams. And obviously being here in Virginia, there's a, there's a lot of Nationals fans. They've really done a good job in building the fan base in such a short period of time. Um, but it's hard to win a championship. And you played on some great teams in the 2010s. What did you learn as a player and as a team from the, the teams that had those early exits when you may have been expected to go a little bit further? Yeah, I mean, I think exactly what you said. It's really hard to win. A championship I think you know playoff baseball is, is a different animal and you know I think we didn't play bad baseball necessarily in those those series that we lost I think I think one year the Giants beat us pretty good I think we like you know a series where they they kind of handled us but you know the other ones where we didn't quite get past that first round it wasn't because we played bad baseball we just we just couldn't break through and I think you know what you learn is the attention to detail in those playoff games, uh, the little things are the most important things. And I think most importantly, what we learned is when you get catch a break or when you get some good luck or, you know, when the other team makes an error, or they give you an extra out, you have to take advantage of those opportunities. And I think going through those failures and not doing that set us up to eventually obviously take advantage of them. But, you know, the the level of play in the playoffs is is so high and you're playing such good teams. It's just, it's really hard to win series. So I think, you know, you have, to, a lot of teams have to go through that and fail a little bit before they can kind of make it to the top. Was there a noticeable difference um, on the team in the clubhouse between the approach of the 2019 team that ended up getting over the hump? Um, was there something different between that team and the other teams? No, I think, you know, we had a good mix of veteran guys who have been through a lot of that. And then honestly, like a great mix of young guys who hadn't been a part of that, but their energy, their youth, their, you know, excitement, I think make drew the best out of the veteran guys as well. And, uh, you know, not so much in the playoffs, but during the regular season, you know, there's days, you know, Thursday day game after a Wednesday night game where, you know, you're, you're excited to play. I mean, we get to play baseball for our job, as I like to call it. But, uh, you know, there are days where you're dragging a little bit. And when you have a 20-year-old Juan Soto or Victor Robles that year, or, you know, young guys like that, that, you know, come in that morning and their their energy, their energy is, is high. And, you know, they almost challenge you to get to their level. So I think we had such a good mix of young, old guys and like, 
I mean, once we got to the playoffs, I think, you know, there was no panic because a lot of us had been through it. Some, some guys haven't had won a world series. So it was just like the perfect storm and the perfect chemistry. And, you know, I've said, I, I really think that's the only group that could have done what we did, you know, start the season so poorly, but not, not panic, not turn on each other. You know, we stuck together. I think other teams would have either thrown in the towel or just started to, you know, not care anymore. And, you know, that group stuck together and obviously it turned into a pretty, pretty special season. It gives hope to every team that starts the season 19 and 31 through 50 games. <laughs> that, that, that is correct. Yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it, but, uh, but yeah, it can be done. When, when you're going through the world series and, you know, you reach game four where, or now you're in game five where no team has won a home game. And then you get through the whole series and no team has won a home game. I think you could play the world series a hundred times, which they have, and that's never happened. Is that a topic of conversation in the clubhouse as you're going through the series? Like what's going on here? And, and, and how do you guys continue to approach the game at that point? Yeah. I mean, you know, at some point, it was kind of like, of course, this is what's going to happen. You know, this has been the craziest year uh, with a crazy like group of guys. Like, why wouldn't this happen to us? It almost like made sense. Um, and then a couple of people were saying it was karma for Houston, you know, to go through what they went through. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about that. But for them to lose a World Series by not winning a game at home, uh, is one of those things where, <laughs> because they had such an advantage at home for, for so long, uh, you know, for, for them to lose all four games at home was kind of ironic, I guess, is, is what some people were saying. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a crazy series. You know, we go in there the first two games and beat Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander, which I don't think Garrett, Garrett lost a game since like the end of May when we went in there and beat him. And, you know, we're flying home thinking, you know, man, we're, we're riding high. And then they come in and, <laughs> and take it to us for three straight games. And now we're going back having to win two straight, you know, in their stadium to win it. So it was, uh, it was a wild ride. But, uh, you know, obviously something I'll never forget. You know, in the 2015 World Series, I talked to both Michael Kadire and David Wright, and they played on the Mets team that, that made it to the series but didn't win. But you were on the same team as Daniel Hudson, uh, another Virginia Beach guy and an ODU grad, um, and he got the final out. Was there – how exciting was it to be with somebody who's from the area? I know that he was traded during that season, so it's not like you were right. long-term teammates, but sharing that moment with another one of the, the 757 or Virginia guys. Yeah, and and Huddy was a little younger than me, but we grew up kind of knowing each other. And uh, and then obviously, you know, I followed his career. He was a high draft pick, had some injuries, and you know, came back from those injuries and sort of reinvented his career as a great relief pitcher. Um, and he is one of the best guys you'll ever meet. I mean, you know, it's it's fun when you get to share the field with with people that kind of came from the same area and, and, and grew up doing the same things you did, but then to get to know him as, you know, as an adult, as a dad, as a, you know, a team. I mean, that, that's why you play the game. I mean, that's why you, you do the things you do to have teammates like him and, and to be able to share that excitement and, and that, uh, you know, obviously that accomplishment with him was, was something that we, uh, you know, every time we see each other, we still talk about it. 
do you feel that you and your team that year were able to properly celebrate with the fans? I know that the next year, obviously, the season was disrupted by COVID. But have you guys had that opportunity to celebrate with the organization, with the fans, that 2019 championship? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we were lucky enough to get in our our parade and things like that, which was so cool for, for us. And I think more importantly for the city and the fan base. Um, yeah. I mean, it was kind of tough not being able to have that 2020 where you are the champs and you're playing and, you know, you're traveling around and, you know, when, when you're the defending world series champs, everyone wants to give you your, your best shot. And I think we didn't really get to experience that, which was unfortunate, obviously, well, there's not much we could have done about it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think not being able to have that year after we won is something that I will always wonder, you know, what would that have been like? And, and honestly, I think, you know, that group of guys and, you know, obviously we, we started trading people and doing some things and uh, you know, there's no excuses. We didn't play good, but I think once you do that and then to, to go to that next season and not have full stadiums, not have, that type of uh, adrenaline or that type of, you know, atmosphere when you step out on the field. I'm not saying that's what what, what went wrong, but it was definitely uh, one of those things that you wish you could have back. Yeah, lots of what ifs there, but we'll, we got a few more questions here and we'll, we'll pick up the energy a little bit more, but uh, <laughs> you know, we, we keep referring to you as the Nationals all-time leader, but it, it is important to remember, and I've mentioned it a few times, that the Nationals were the Expos prior to the move to D.C., so when you're the all-time leader in a category, it's across franchise history, so when you hear your name mentioned with the likes of Gary Carter, Tim Raines, Andre Dawson, and, and others, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it's humbling, I think. Um, you know, I just grew up playing baseball. I love to play the game. Never once would have thought that this would have happened. Um, you know, everyone says, oh, they play to become a big leaguer, all that. Like, I just played because I loved the game. I enjoyed it. Um, and then as I got older, I realized that if I continued to work hard, maybe I could go to school and go to college and play baseball at college. And And you think that's pretty cool. And that would be a heck of an accomplishment. And then from there, you, you know, so you don't, at least for me, I never really thought this was what was going to happen. Um, I just enjoyed every year and tried to get better and, and, and worked hard at it. And, you know, I looked at it more just I was having fun with a bunch of my friends and playing a game that we all loved. And, you know, that's how I continued to think about it every year when I played in the big leagues. But, you know, so to hear kind of all that stuff and, you know, the, the, the records, the hits, all that. I mean, it's just something that happened because honestly, each year I just tried to do the best that I can. And um, I tried to prepare and I thought I owed it to, you know, the fans, my organization to bust my butt and prepare and, and give myself the best chance to succeed for them. Um, you know, I felt a sense of responsibility that I'm getting to play this game that I love as my job and get paid to do it. Like the least that I can do is do everything I can to be prepared that way too. If I failed and didn't come through or I had some bad years or things, at least I knew inside myself that I, I did everything that I could to succeed and baseball's hard. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but uh, you know, yeah. So when you hear that stuff, like you said, Gary Carter, Andre Dawson, guys like that. I mean, you know, those are guys I've watched on TV and, you know, growing up when I was learning how to play the game. So to, to be, you know, mentioned in the same sentence as them is, is very humbling. 
Well, you, you, your approach on the field is uh, is certainly respected, and you you see that through your your um, the way that U University of Virginia baseball and the Nationals organization still reveres you. But as I mentioned in the intro, you have also done quite a bit off the field, and you were recently awarded the Power of Baseball Award by Washington Nationals Philanthropies. But you were also the Nationals Roberto Clemente Award nominee six times during your career. Where do those honors rank in your personal record book? Yeah, I mean, I think being able, first of all, being able to be in the same place as long as I was allowed me to be so involved in the community. I think a lot of guys aren't as fortunate because they kind of bounce around and they still do great work and, and do things everywhere that they go or, you know, back in their hometown and things like that. But for me, playing so close to Virginia Beach, being able to kind of interconnect Virginia Beach and the D.C., Northern Virginia area for me was special and in you know, honestly, very convenient. Uh, so, you know, to be able to have the special relationship that I have with both of those communities kind of, I say separately, but also together, um, you know, is a unique situation that not many athletes are afforded. And I think uh, I just did my best to, to take advantage of that and use my platform to do good things and uh, hopefully teach some of the young kids that came along to kind of give back. And that's what I was always taught. I mean, we're very lucky to be in the situation we're in and do everything you can to allow other, allow other people to have that opportunity. One of those good things is the Zims Foundation, which you founded in 2006. And, uh, and in that short period of time, you've helped raise over $4 million in the fight against MS. When you started Zims, could you have ever dreamed that it would turn into to what it's done in the impact you've made? Yeah, we had, we had no idea what we were doing, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, we literally, the off season after that September of 05, when I got called up, um, we kind of just sat in the living room and said, you know, we should, we should do something. We'd always talked about doing something. Uh, and now I had this amazing platform and opportunity to actually go for it and do it. So, I mean, my family deserves most of the credit. My, my parents did so much work, pretty much all the work. My brother was huge in doing a lot of things. So, I mean, so many volunteers in that Virginia Beach area. Um, so, I mean, we couldn't have done any of what, what we have built and what we have created is, you know, they deserve most of the credit for that. But, you know, at the end of the day, too, we just had a good time. We enjoyed the events. We enjoyed doing the golf tournaments. We enjoyed doing the, the galas, you know, at the Hilton and, and all that stuff. Um, I think every year it was a lot of work, but it was one of those, like, you know, the labor of love. And, and you know, I think my mom really enjoyed calling everywhere and wearing them out until they gave us stuff for free. So, you know, I think she took it as like a mission to get as much stuff for free for the auction. Uh, so it became something that we kind of did as a family. And obviously because my mom has MS, it's near and dear to our heart. And we obviously have a personal connection to it, but then you start to meet other people that have MS or my parents would go to like some retreats or help host retreats. And like, then you start to kind of create relationships through it and see people and learn, you know, of other people's hardships and, uh, you know, it becomes a part of your life. And I think, you know, we kind of loved making those, you know, relationships and helping as many people as we could. And, you know, we, uh, we've taken some time off because of the COVID stuff, which I think a lot of nonprofits sort of had to for the last two or three years. And, um, and Heather, my wife and, and I, are probably going to get things going again here soon. So we're, uh, we're looking forward to 
to getting back into that because it really is something that we love doing. Well, as a 501c3 here at the Hall of Fame, I can appreciate your mom's approach to, to those calls. <laughs> she is a grinder. She's a grinder, man. She she was getting it. If they didn't want to give it for free, she was moving on. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, it, it's been fun kind of talking to you about your career on the field and off the field. And it's clear that you've made an impact anywhere you've gone. And uh, and we're looking forward to next weekend. Um, it's uh, it, We're very excited about you going into the Hall of Fame with the rest of the class of 2023. And so it's been a pleasure catching up with you today. And like I said, we're looking forward to next weekend. And I know a lot of other people are as well. So thanks for taking some time today. Yeah, no problem. I'm looking forward to it as well. It's a, a huge honor and uh, it should be, a, should be a really fun weekend. We are looking forward to it. And, and I'd like to thank everyone who has tuned in or who will listen to this or watch this video following this interview. Uh, be sure to stay up to date on all things Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and the Hall Call interview series by following our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. You can also listen to the Hall Call podcast on Apple, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Join us tomorrow night at 6 p.m. for our next edition where we'll catch up with 2023 inductee D'Angelo Hall. Once again, I'm Will Driscoll with the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. The 2023 induction is just 11 days away. Whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and we'll see you next time.